hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Does the thought of retirement keep you up at night? Not because of finances, but because you won't have children there to care for you and you might not have a partner or spouse to be there for you? You're listening to Queer Money episode 438. And today we're talking about retirement planning for solo and child-free agers. Per a recommendation in the Queer Money Facebook group, we're joined today by Dr. Sarah Zeff Geber, author of Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers. From her years of research and speaking on the topic, Sarah shares ideas on housing solutions, both domestic and abroad, how to stay mentally and physically healthy as long as possible, and how to design a rewarding second, third, and even fourth act. So remember to hang on to the end to find out how you may enter to win a free copy of Dr. Geber's book. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Thank you for joining us for another episode those of you who comment and share on social media or in the Facebook group about different topics on our social media feed, you might think that we're not paying attention. But a couple months ago in the Facebook group, there was a discussion about LGBTQ plus people finding villages around the country where we can retire. And somebody recommended Dr. Sarah Zeff Geber's book as an essential book for any solo or child-free ager to read. So we had our virtual assistant track Dr. Geber down. And fortunately enough, she agreed to come onto our podcast. So welcome, Dr. Sarah Zeff Geber to the Queer Money Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, John. Thank you. So can you help us set a baseline here? You've been in this industry for a while. You've been helping solo agers and child-free agers for years, and you've written a very dense book about it. What's your definition of a solo ager? I'm glad you started with that because it's a, it's a confusing term. And and in fact, my own definition of it has kind of morphed over the last few years. But I now define solo ager as anyone who is aging alone or without family support. You may be happily aging alone right now, especially if you're in your 50s or 60s or even 70s, but doesn't remain quite so happy when you need somebody there to help with care. So when you think about do you have family support? That's really the, the key issue. I'm married, my husband and I, but my husband and I don't have kids and we don't have family in the area. So we both consider ourselves solo agers and we, we have both planned accordingly for that because we don't know which one of us is going to be the solo ager in the end. Right, exactly. Well, then that's great information to have. I mean, you, you probably already know this is it's from your research. Seems you're well connected to these statistics, but according to the Williams Institute, only about twenty percent of LGBTQ plus folks have children. And while having children isn't a guarantee that you're going to have some sort of support system when you're older in retirement, it does increase the likelihood that you'll have that support. And many LGBTQ folks, especially today, 
those who are in retirement, 60s, 70s, and 80s right now, don't have the familial support of nephews and nieces and brothers and sisters to help them in their older age. So I think this is a very essential topic for probably the whole country, since we know that individual households, those in who are being managed by individuals in a household is increasing, but for LGBTQ plus people, especially. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, in the boomer generation, which are the people that I'm mostly speaking to now and to which I belong, I think that for the LGBTQ plus population, it, it wasn't nearly as common to adopt children. So far fewer of baby boomers, I suspect, have children than when you look at the Gen X and Gen Y and millennials. Now, adoption is, is much more commonplace and I mean, I mean, I have a number of, of friends who have adopted and they're going to have that when they grow older as a support. They may not think so now, but uh, my experience <laughs> is that, you know, gay or straight, wherever the kids came from, they rush in and help when the need is there. So Absolutely. Yeah, but, you know, it, it is an interesting thing we have seen over the decades that the size of households, even ones where there are parents and children, is shrinking, right? We're now below to the average number of children in a household is below two, which means that there must be a significant number where there aren't any at all. So the population of of couples or individuals who don't have children is on the increase. So it's a this is an expanding topic and something I think that we in the personal finance space, those of us in the LGBT personal finance space, especially, is just not a topic that we seem to be giving much attention to. And we probably need to start doing it a little bit more because, as you bring out, that just the size of the aging population is growing. So there's more people who would be interested in this. Absolutely. Yeah. We're just not replacing ourselves you know, essentially that's it. And I was just reading this morning that it's even more critical in Europe. Um, They have even more one person households. So they're facing a crisis very similar to we are. It's not limited to the US, but it's certainly happening. Yeah. So let's see if we can find some solutions for folks. So from your expertise, what do you find is that are the most forgotten considerations for those who are solar agers and those who don't have children to help them out in their retirement years? What I see primarily is people planning when they plan at all. These are people that are actually planning, and that's a fairly small percentage. A lot of people would just like to live in what I consider a magical wonderland where they're going to spend their final day on the golf course, have a wonderful meal, and then die in their sleep. And that, of course, is not what happens to most people. So the most forgotten thing, even if people are willing to plan for their death and do all the what's called pre-planning, they don't plan for their care. And for most people, a huge percentage, I mean, 70% of us is the figure that we that I see all the time are going to need care for some period of time in our life. It might not be those last two months or two years leading up to when we finally leave this planet, but it might be, and it's more likely to be at the end. So planning for care is the, the forgotten element in many cases. And do you find that that's just something that people forget? It's a technicality. They don't think to address? Or is this the topic so scary that they don't want to broach it? 
I think it's the latter. I've been doing this now for about 12 years. I changed careers. I was an organizational consultant for many years. And then I switched. And when I switched over, I started talking about older age and planning. And I could barely get anyone to sit down and listen. It's different today. People will sit down and listen. I don't have any friends left that won't talk to me about solo aging because if they won't talk to me about it, then they, you know, they're so uncomfortable. They go their way and, and mm. my friends now are happy to talk about it, but it, people avoid it tremendously. Absolutely. So I think a common theme that I noticed throughout your book is, is it summed up in a quote that you included from Betty Friedan, who says, aging is not lost youth, but a new stage of opportunity and strength. And I think it's kind of what you're addressing. I mean, people oftentimes assuming aging is death, but there are there are lots of phases that happen before that. Can you elaborate on on that theme and and, and how people can look to that in an advantageous way as opposed to something that's a detraction? Sure. You know, it, the old pattern and the old script that we used to live by of people growing up, getting married, having a career that lasted for 40 years and then getting the gold watch and sailing off into the sunset. And honestly, most people didn't live past the age of 60 and died very soon after retirement. That is just out the window. Mm-hmm. People are living so much longer and they're they're enjoying lots of different stages. I think that your younger audience will relate to that probably better than the older audience because I don't think people today, I don't think millennials ever think about having a, a career or a let alone a job that would last 40 years. They just go from one thing to the next as it suits them and as their interests fluctuate. And it's the same thing with later life. I mean, I'm probably a good example of someone who just totally changed careers later in life. My previous career was was fun and rewarding while it lasted. And then a, a lot of changes started happening. I wasn't doing as much training and I was having to do coaching and I'm not very suited for for coaching. So I just shifted. And that's what people need to do. Just just pivot. When the world pivots, we need to pivot. And it's pivoted more and more often. I mean, I have loads of examples of friends of mine that have left careers and gone on to do something that was meaningful to them, like work with dogs. I have one friend with a master's degree and has is now working three quarters time at the Humane Society. I have a nurse friend who also is a dog lover and has ended up working for Canine Companions. Mm -hmm. Another friend who's a a retired doctor who is now president of the board of our local food kitchen, soup kitchen or whatever you want to call it, food pantry. People just look around and gravitate to the things that interest them. And it's a whole nother phase of life. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today.
Yeah. Absolutely. Do you I'm think gonna throw, I'm going to throw something a little cheeky in here, but just the data <laughs> that comes out of the villages and what we know what's going on with STDs, we know that life still is a lot of fun, evidently, when you get older, yes. right? So yes. it's it, it's not just that we change careers, our sex lives can evolve and be fun and enjoyable. For people in our community, it is interesting how many people we see in their boomer years who are coming out now. So life has a lot of advantages if you allow yourself to age and enjoy it, right? Yeah, age as you are, you know, yeah. who you are. And, and it is a great time to learn more about yourself, to be more authentic to whether that means coming out or or whatever it might mean, but embracing what's authentic about you and what your true interests are. It's a, a wonderful time in life to do that. I think one of the, one of the worksheets that you included in your book, I think it's your values clarification worksheet. I think that was very thoughtful exercise for people to go through because you know we've talked a lot about on this podcast about how so often by the time we reach adulthood we, we look back and we're like how did i become the person i became like who who said i was going to enjoy all this stuff <laughs> you know who said i was going to be this person and so that kind of gives you the opportunity to say what are my values what does interest me how do i want to adapt I'm, I'm wondering if you know based on what you said that with millennials being more adept at switching jobs or or or, or chasing should say chasing, but looking towards what's most interesting to them at that time. Do you think that they might then be more adept at being able to make those kind of changes when they are in their 60s and 70s relative to what baby boomers are doing today? I suspect so. I don't have a crystal ball, but you know, we get used to a way of being in the world mm-hmm. and it follows us. So what was what you're able to do in earlier years becomes the same kind of thing you're able to do in later years and maybe a little different form. So I, I suspect that's probably true. Yeah. So there you go, millennials. You got a bone. <laughs> <laughs> We're not always bashing millennials on this Gen X show. <laughs> Another theme, and I would I kind of get the impression that that's it's a critical theme throughout your book is that for people to be able to live their best lives until the very end is creating a sense of community and support, not necessarily providing you physical or medical support, but just people to be around because there's a sense that isolation and loneliness are two of the biggest critical factors in poor health, both physical and mental. Can you elaborate on, on that a little bit, especially since a lot of LGBTQ people already to a certain degree feel isolated and that can maybe gravitate towards more of that as they age. Sure. I think I, to sum it up, I would say, find your tribe and burrow in. We are tribal people. We are, we are social creatures. Mm-hmm. And to isolate ourselves is, is really not natural to who we are. So it's kind of, it's sort of shocking to me that so many people are choosing to live alone And that's not to say that I I don't have a lot of friends that do live alone happily, whether they never married or whether they're divorced or whether they've come out or whatever, whatever led them to live alone. I think that we have to reevaluate that as we get older, because loneliness and isolation really are very detrimental to our health. And you can find so much research on that. And then, you know, a lot the pandemic prompted a lot of research on isolation and loneliness. And there already was research. So it's it's just not 
a, it's not kind of up for debate. It's not healthy to live alone as you get older. And you can think about it. You live your, your life in your world of work to some extent. And your a lot of your friends, people around you, that, that's your that's your social context when you are in early life, middle age, and even toward the end of your career. But people, again, people find new new careers or new social circles. But it's it has to be a deliberate activity for many people. And it should be. I think that we are the need to form community, the need to be part of a community and feel like we are a hog in a, in a wheel of some sort, that people care about us and, and we care about them is so, so important. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting in your book on page 110, you said child-free individuals with a solid support system, support network, are mentally healthier than parents with a modest to weak social network. So even necessarily having kids doesn't doesn't guarantee that that level of, of health if you don't have a close tie to those children. Whereas yep. if you are a solo ager or you don't have children, but you have a strong support network, you can still maintain that that that, that positive mental and physical health. Well, that was a very interesting dichotomy. Yeah. I think that it's certainly not a there's not a strict dividing line because a lot of people are very involved in their community and they don't have kids. And there are younger people in their community that will, that they can literally contract with and talk about what they want as they get older. I always encourage people to use their nieces and nephews if they're close to them, if they're the kind of people that they would trust as sort of the first line of defense on that. But barring having nieces and nephews that you even want to engage like that, then you're going to have to look to your community and find the younger people within your community to to help you with that. Yeah, it's it's, it's a very intentional exercise. There's an article published, I don't remember what publication it was, but it was during the pandemic that talked about this husband and wife couple who moved to a different city and found it very, very hard to make new friends, Mm -hmm. especially when you're in your midlife and other people have children because they've already got their lives, right? They've got their careers they're working on, they're balancing their own personal spousal relationships. Then if they have their children, well, that's like a whole, like that takes your whole life, right? Running them around to all different events. And so unless you can really sync up with people who are kind of at a point in their life where they're actually interested to make in, in putting forth the effort to make friends, it's kind of hard to do so. And I did think, you know, you touched on it here, but you mentioned in your book the importance of George Valiant's study and how he found that a critical component is not only necessarily trying to connect with those who are your own age, but trying to connect with those who are younger than you. Would you yes. mind elaborating on why that's so critical? Well, really, it it just follows along with what we were talking about what we've been talking about really this intergenerational relationships are going to be critical because as we get older, our contemporaries are getting old with us. And I, I love people that I encounter from time to time, which tell me, Oh yes, my friends and I all have this pact that we're going to help one another. And I said, Oh, that, that sounds intriguing. And how old are your friends? Oh, we're all about 75. (laughs) What part of this doesn't ring? It doesn't quite make sense to you. 
Right. You've you've got to to make some inter some connections with younger people. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, in the book, you, you elaborate like not only do are they able to provide this type of support that your peers in their seventies can't necessarily provide, but they also can infuse a level of energy into your life and provide some new perspective that you might not necessarily have considered that absolutely. will you know, keep you physically and, and mentally engaged more so than otherwise. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. a kind of an added benefit. I, I think of the the storylines that oftentimes are in books and movies and TV shows of the older person who lives on the block whose house is scary and nobody knows that they're the they're the creepy old person or the old witch or whatever right and then you find out that there's just this humble older person living in this home that has all these amazing stories and experience and the community finds out about that and can celebrate and rejoice that and i think that's the more isolated we get because of technology i think that that just is to me seems like it's a it's a a barrier that maybe this is even going to happen more is as people age, we become more isolated and we have to, like you said, do it intentionally. We have to figure out intentionally, how do we get out of the house? How do we communicate with our neighbors and how do we be a part of our community? Yeah. The amount of um, online connecting these days, I find is a little scary. I hope it isn't going to go away. We're always going to have to live with it in some form. Most people I know have now had it. They've survived. It was kind of like a bad cold or sometimes not even a very bad cold. We've got to get out of our homes again. Mm-hmm. I just, I've been beating that drum now for about a year. And in fact, when I get asked to, to speak, I will no longer do Zoom presentations unless the group is on the other side of the country and they just, and I really love what they're doing and they can't afford to fly me out. But for local groups, I won't do it anymore. So get that group together and I'll be happy to be your guest. Start being social. So what suggestions yeah. do you have for folks to not only connect with other people outside of their current friends group, but maybe specifically with those who might be younger than them? Any thoughts? Yeah, there's a number of ways of doing that. I mean, people find all kinds of interesting ways to build community. Probably the most traditional way is to join a church or a synagogue or some place of worship, even if you don't believe in God, you know, just join for the social aspects. My husband and I moved to Santa Rosa, California, where we live now, in 2015. We were both at that point in our mid-60s. And we had what I call kind of a starter kit of friends up here, but we didn't know a lot of people. And so we joined a synagogue and started to get friendly with other people, both younger and and older. And, And that was kind of our entree to doing it. We have also become friendly with some of our friends' kids, their adult children. And those are candidates too, by the way, on my estate documents where I have listed people that I want to make decisions for me if I cannot, essentially my my healthcare directive. On, I think the the third line below my husband and some other person is the son of a woman that I've known all my life. You know, I know that his values are her values. I know him well enough that I that I know he would 
do right by me. So these people that you are going to trust and put your put your life in their hands later, it's never too early to start thinking about who's going to do that for you. And by the way, you think you're, if you think, oh, I can't put that on someone, you know what? Somebody who's 20 years younger is soon going to be 20 years older and they're going <laughs> to need the same thing. So it's approach it mentally as a what goes around comes around kind of phenomenon. My fantasy is I think about creating groups of people who believe they're, who don't have kids or believe they're going to be really aging solo in from their 50s to their 80s or 90s and have them work almost in a kind of a, a circular looping pattern so that those in their 50s and 60s do sign up to help those who are older now and then expecting that the group will then be infused with people younger than them who will then be able to be in a position to take care of them. So that's a fantasy that I don't know is going to, it's going to come true, but <laughs> could. What you're describing is very reminiscent of what we do see in tribes, nomadic tribes, yes. the tribes, you know, the, the tribes of Native Americans. It was very yes. common for it, it, even people living in Northern Canada and Alaska the native people there, it's very common for those people to be taken care of a family member intergenerational households, which is not Absolutely. so common down here in the not here. Yeah. And in, in, in the US. And I think it's a little bit more common in Europe, but not as you know common as we know in some other tribal communities. Yeah, not Western Europe, evidently. But you know, the less developed a culture is, the more likely they are to still live close to one another, be interdependent, take care of their of their older and their younger members, kind of tribally. You now I certainly saw that. I haven't visited any tribes in Canada, but I certainly saw that in Africa when I visited and, and met some of the Maasai people. Absolutely. You know, they don't think about things like this. They don't have to. It's just natural. It's interesting turn of events. I have a lot of thoughts on it, but they don't apply to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get a little bit more holistic here. You talk about an early part of your book, pages 61 and 62, you list the six elements of fulfilling life in later decades of, of your life. What are those? And can you give us a little bit of a brief description of each? Sure. I wrote them down again for myself so I didn't have to page through my own book. <laughs> you don't um, have them memorized? It's five years old this year. It passed its fifth birthday in April. Nice. And I find more and more that I'm having to look back myself. And of course, I, I plan to do an update at some point. But anyway, the first one of those is financial security, which I know is what you guys are essentially all about. And I'm sure... In talking to the two of you, I'm preaching to the choir, but maybe some of your listeners need to hear this again. Just make sure you're not living beyond your means. Modify your lifestyle if your rate of spending will render you penniless by the age of 85 or 100%. even 95. Yeah, <laughs> yep. that's just that's kind of the long and the short of it. The second one is commitment to good health and physical well-being. You know, I think that speaks for itself. Eating right, working out, keeping your body at the, at the right weight, making sure that you, e even for very healthy people, 
there are hereditary things that happen to us, making sure that we see a medical professional regularly and tested for things like diabetes and whatnot. Self-awareness, that's kind of a, a less obvious one. For me, it has to do with really understanding yourself as well as you possibly can, understanding your preferences, things like, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Are you a morning person or a night owl? What is your communication style and how does it affect others? Those are just, just a few. Some people learn more about themselves through therapy, whether it's one-on-one uh, -on -one talk therapy or in a group. It's a great way to learn about yourself is to listen to yourself, answer some questions that get thrown out in a group context like that. And what is the value of that exactly? The value of that seems pretty intrinsic. I mean, I I certainly feel like I know more about myself today than I did 30 years ago, and I'm a happier person for it. So, yeah, I'd be hard-pressed to answer that in any concrete way. It's just an internal thing that should feel good when you get to know yourself a little better and make Absolutely. some course corrections from it. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the fourth one is adaptability and flexibility. That is, you know, how well do you adapt to change? Change is all around us. And it's, it's kind of feels like it's coming at a more rapid pace than it used to. On my website, I have an assessment adapt. It's kind of a little quiz on adaptability and flexibility. And it's probably the most popular one on the website. I, I think it's the only one that is not in the book. The others listed on the website are in the book, but I think I made this one. I created this one after the book came out, but it's, it, it's very popular. The fifth one is having a strong social network. We've kind of pretty much covered that already. And then the fifth one is religion and spirituality. The common wisdom that people have written about for years is that as you approach your final days, that your own spirituality, your own relationship with God or whatever, you know, whatever you call your, maybe your relationship with yourself gets more and more critical and more and more important. You, you begin to pull inward. So I am not the best person really to talk about about that. I'm sort of reporting the news because I'm not a particularly religious person myself. And it's different than when I said one way to create a community is to join a church or synagogue. I think most places of worship recognize that older adults have already They've already figured out what their relationship is to their own spirituality, whether they believe in God or not, or what kind of a God. What they're there for is is a social life, mm -hmm. and the, and smart people who run places of worship understand that, and they, they create groups for older adults. They create groups for adults with different preferences, adults with different lifestyles. But again. This religion and spirituality one is a just a very personal thing, but it's something to think about. So those are the six. Yeah, I think that the last one's a timely one because we're talking a lot more about mindfulness and simply being aware of something that's just, you know, something that's larger than yourself, right? There's something more important than just me. I'm part of whether you want to call it universe or God or, you know, Yahweh, whatever. I don't know. There's something bigger than myself that 
that can pro- provide some more value to my life and that that of others, right? Yeah, kind of an energy. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's more more common that we're more contemporary of a topic for people these days, maybe since COVID. Yeah. And I think that as you list these out here, it really does strike a chord with me that that a lot of times when we see younger folks who are very involved with consumerism and their careers and they're very aggressive with their their lifestyle oftentimes we see these are the kinds of things that kind of fall to the wayside right people are not engaged with doing what's right for their body and their mind they're not engaged in some sort of spiritual practice they are maybe they have a friends group but it's not a strong friends group it's more of a party friends group right but as we age we're probably not going to be as involved in those kinds of activities we do need to definitely migrate to what is really the importance of who we are as human beings yeah 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 absolutely and sometimes those party groups morph and become like change and become a, a more kind of a more a deeper group something yeah. people that get below the surface concerns and sometimes they people spin off and other people come in yeah absolutely thank you for sharing that list I, yeah the reason i like that list is because i very often, I think especially as we age, we get very myopic in the things that we focus on. And I don't, I think we oftentimes forget, maybe even not necessarily when we're older, because, you know, as you said, sometimes we're so focused on our career and, and acquisition that we other things fall to the wayside. But we are, you know, whole creatures, right? There's a whole lot to us as opposed to rather than just trying to acquire money or trying to acquire friends or trying to acquire status. We have sort of this 360 experience that we need to sort of address. And if we don't, sometimes that can cause some sort of problems down the road if you don't address all the areas adequately, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of finance, we were not going to dive too much into it because I know you're not a financial advisor or a planner, certified anyway. But I did, you did have dedicate a couple of chapters to money because it's a very important topic to help get through retirement. That said, what do you find from your your clients and the people that you've worked with and interviewed to be some of the biggest challenges for solo agers and child-free agers that those of us who are younger can maybe start to address? at a more amenable age? So this is one area where I don't find any differences between solo agers and people who have family who have the support of grown kids or other family members. The interesting thing that I find when I talk to people is their different approaches. And our approach to saving, to spending, to investing often to all of the time, comes from what we grew up with, the messages that we got, those money messages that we got early in life. Is money a scarce commodity? Is money a readily available commodity? Did you have to, did your family have to scrimp and save when you were young? Or did they, was there plenty of money and mom or dad didn't ever lose their job? Or maybe they did and then money got really tight. And so, those things imprint themselves on our psyche very early in life. I find it one of the most fascinating things about money is the psychological connection to it. 
So in, in that one, I'm going to have to beg off and say nothing special for solo agers here. That's. I think that's very interesting that you say that. I just assumed there were going to be all sorts of differences in every other topic that we talked about relative to those with children and 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 who are coupled and vice versa. But it's interesting that for when it comes to finances, like the challenges are just all the same for everybody, regardless of your sexual orientation, your relationship status. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think so. It, it, and of course, you know, I, you talk. There's a lot of talk these these days about the extent of gray divorce, and I expect that applies also to the LGBTQ plus community. There's also gray divorce. And when you talk about people who have been building a nest egg for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then all of a sudden it's halved, that's a challenge. Right. And so that's a consideration, but it certainly isn't limited to solo Asia. I mean, solo agers to some extent, if we're talking about people who are not partnered they that they've been building their whole lives hopefully they've been building and nothing changes but there that's a, a a different dynamic and that can that can happen to solo agers too if we're talking about solo agers maybe like my husband and me who just don't, simply don't have kids so but it doesn't change a lot have you experienced or talked with anybody? I think maybe one dynamic that might be different is have you worked with anybody who's aging, have children, and seem to be sacrificing their retirement future to take care of their children? And so the retirement money, money that should be for their retirement, is being used to fund the daily lifestyle of, of their children. Is that maybe one dynamic that 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 you see that's different? Well, not with solo. I mean, solo agers, it's not a dynamic with solo agers, but I read about that. And I just, you know, not having kids, I'm like, you did what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't have to put my dog through college. (laughs) I don't have to buy my dog a house. But yeah, I see that in some of my friends. They're just, you know, it's a constant opening, opening the checkbook, colloquially speaking. And and doling out cash for their kids' needs. But yeah, it's kind of a different topic. Yeah. 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 And, and on the flip side, John and I have recently, because it's been a topic we've been discussing online with folks, this whole idea that on average, 50% of parents who have adult children are helping to pay for some aspect of their kids' daily lives. And on average are doling out $1,442 a month to these kids, which is a significant amount of money. But then we're kind of wondering this kind of reciprocal, I'm taking care of you today, you need to take care of me tomorrow. And I think that's one of the big concerns that a lot of solo agers have is we didn't invest in, or we're not investing in our children. And so who is going to invest in us? And we've kind of touched on this already at the at the outset. It, it, I guess it, it is important. Do we find, do we then go out and find somebody to start investing in? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, uh, very honestly, I paid for my niece's college education. My brother is couldn't be the provider that I had hoped he would be and whatnot. They really kind of live hand to mouth. And I knew that my nieces were going to need some help. So I did that. And and yes, I I will be counting on my nieces to help me. So yeah, it's a good point. 
Yeah. Yeah. Every time we help our, our nieces or David's stepson they, and they always say, thank you. We say, just remember, we're going to need somebody to take care of us. <laughs> I do the same thing. Right. <laughs> You're going to come visit me. And Two or three times a year. We have to remind them that we're going to be old someday. You're in yeah. the world for now. We're getting to that age, right? I know. I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't want to speak ill will of my grandmother, but I do remember my grandmother at times would call and would say, I'm writing him out of the will. I'm taking him out of the will. And yeah. oftentimes she was speaking about one of my uncles. But, you know, we're kind of now getting to the point where we're we're, we're, doing, we're threatening that with our, our nieces and my stepson. Hopefully so, they know you're joking. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, there's always a little bit of truth in every joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like to tackle the, the the reason why you came up in our private Facebook group, and that is various ways that we can housing situations, how we, various ways that we can find either if we're a solo ager, especially how we might want to join a village, a community. There are intention, intention focus communities. I'd like to touch a little bit on that. So could you share some of those, especially co-housing, home sharing, and cultural special communities that might be appealing to our demographic of folks, especially as they, as they age? Sure. Well, let me start with shared housing. And that is happily becoming more, more common. It partially is a reaction to the difficulty of living in today's very expensive world. Some people are, are pairing up or maybe two or three people to a household. One person has a large home that they are rambling around in and don't need the bedrooms anymore. They can easily rent them out to either a contemporary or maybe a younger person. So it can be a, a way of building some intergenerational contacts. There are now some good websites that help pair people up for that, match people for that. But the most popular one is called Silver Nest. And they're operating, they're totally virtual, but they operate in every geographic area, every major geographic area for sure. And I know they, gosh, I probably haven't looked at what they're doing now for several years, but I'm sure they're in, in most major and even minor markets now for people to find like-minded people to, to live with. We're talking about a la Golden Girls. I know that that for those of you who didn't grow up with the Golden Girls, but they are, may have caught some reruns from time to time. <laughs> this is a group of women that live together in Miami or somewhere in Florida. They all shared a lovely home. And two of them were a mother and daughter combo. And the other two were just renting rooms there in the home. But they all, you know, they had their moments. They They fought. They complained, they argued, but they also loved one another and they helped one another and 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 were each other's confidants. So it was a what you'd call a, a dramedy. And it, it set a great I'm so glad that show was on because it set a great example. It's it painted a great picture for what co-living or having homemates can be. Mm-hmm. Some people absolutely shudder and back away at the thought. And I think that's, I'm sorry about that. I, I think that's a shame because again, isolation and loneliness simply lead to early death, literally. I mean, you can find a gazillion studies that bear that out. 
Okay, so I'll get off my soapbox about community again. <laughs> That's okay. We can talk about Golden Girls yeah, all day. Girls. We've literally watched it like, like six eight, times eight, through. Oh, good. <laughs> oh, good. I am a huge fan of co-housing. I, my husband and I almost moved into a co-housing community in Silicon Valley that it was being built and we were, we joined and we had our unit all picked out. And then it came down to, we adopted a dog that we didn't realize at the time was going to be so completely unsuited for living in a condominium style home for a lot of reasons that I won't go into, but we finally very reluctantly had to back out. We're still great friends with almost all the people that live there, although they've had some turnover because it is elder co-housing in this case and elder co-housing, you know, lasts as long as people live. So they have lost a few members and the units have turned over. Most co-housing is intergenerational, which is a wonderful way to be, you know, to make intergenerational contacts. And by the way, I don't want to forget to mention that there is a new community, new co-housing community, and this falls into the category of cultural specialty, that is called Village Hearth Community. It's in Durham, North Carolina, and it's LGBTQ focused. That was the one that was on CBC. First one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first one that I know of, you know, LGBTQ and supporters and friends. But there are also other intentional communities that you alluded to, And most of those intentional communities are more along the lines of the old communes. People really pitch in together and and devote their whole lives to maybe it's a sustainable farm. Maybe it's a religious practice. There are a number of communities like that still operating in this country. And a lot of them, interestingly enough, in the Northeast and the Southeast. I don't know about a lot of, and not too many in California, but I Again, I don't know a lot of about that. So there is, for anybody who's interested in home sharing, the home sharing guru in this country is a woman by the name of Anna Marie Pluhar, P-L-U-H-A-R. And she has written a book on how to set up a co-living situation. So she's a good resource. Nice. It's also, I, it's a great time for me to mention that the last year, much of my energies were devoted to creating the current issue of the American Society on Aging's Generations Journal. It's a journal that comes out quarterly. A couple of years ago, they did away with the print version, which had been going for 40-something years, and now it's all online. But I was asked to be the guest editor for the summer edition because it is entirely on solo aging. So if you want a resource that is has 16 articles all on some aspect of solo aging, it's a it's just a go-to resource. Nice. Yeah, it just came out a week and a half ago and I'm thrilled about it. Or we had some some little glitches to work out about paywalls and things, but I think I got those <laughs> removed. The thing that I didn't mention in terms of living choices are there are expensive ones for those of your listeners who have money and want to live in a retirement community, the life plan communities can be fabulous places for people. They're they're changing 
quickly. They're no longer the like docked cruise ships that people <laughs> used to call them 10 years ago. They really get it that this generation of older adults wants meaning and purpose in their lives. If they've had a garden all their lives, they don't want to quit digging in the dirt. And so they're, you know, they're creating everything from raised beds to dog parks and, and, and opportunities for people to don't to volunteer their time at, in nearby shelters and and get together with younger people and do some mentoring it's all kinds of of they like to call it opportunities now rather than programming <laughs> they're just they're just changing and and sure. if, even if you're uh if you had a parent or a grandparent that lived in one of these communities this is as they say not your grandmother's retirement community so there's one in my town, actually, that was designed, built, and marketed to the LGBTQ community. Oh, nice. And I've known a number of people, I've interviewed a number of people there before I wrote the book. And I go over there a lot for meetings and things. It's called Fountain Grove Lodge. And at this point, I think there are 70% gay or lesbian and 30% straight supporters. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. So co-housing, is that, would that like the villages fall under that, where there's a community of people who live in no. their own houses? No. No. The villages are an entirely different phenomenon. Villages happen in different communities, different municipalities. It was started in Boston, in Beacon Hill, that area of Boston. And people just simply knew that they were, you know, there was a, a lot of people who were kind of friendly with one another. They were all growing old together and they wanted to combine their resources to have some support. And so they created the Beacon Hill Village. And most villages require you to pay something like anything from 500 to 2000 a year for the privilege of having a concierge that you call up and say i need a i need a vetted roofer or i need someone to clean my gutters or i need someone to walk my dog i'm going to go have knee surgery and i'll be down for a month a lot of these are are done free by volunteers and most of the villages run on a stable of volunteers for for rides and dog walks and all kinds of things. There's probably three or 400 of them around the country now. Oh, wow. Now, co-housing is an intentional community. When you join a co-housing community, by the way, a village can be several hundred households. Okay. Depending. A a co-housing community was designed and built for a group of people that want to make their lives together. Now, everyone in the community has bought their unit. It's very much, to the outside world, it looks very much like a condominium complex or a a collection of little cottages. But everyone owns their own unit. Everyone has their own kitchen, bathrooms, bedrooms. It just, it looks like a home. But it's usually smaller than a home because in the common areas, you have a large dining hall, meeting rooms, a workout studio, a crafts room, a woodworking, and whatever the community wants to build into what they're developing. So very different than a village. Gotcha. And it's usually about 30 30 units. Okay. So much smaller scale, but more in terms of the type of lifestyle that you want to create for yourself and the, the few people that you'll be living with or around. Yeah, exactly. And most most co-housing communities 
have communal meals two or three times a week, rotating people who want to volunteer to cook or volunteer to clean up. It's just, you know, they participate. Almost every co-housing community I've ever seen has a community garden. They grow as much of their own food as they can, depending on, you know, where they're located. But they just get involved in projects together and they become, in many cases, each other's best friends. Nice. Yeah. I kind of, that for me, possibly us, I feel like that's kind of appealing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, we've, on our Deaf Free Guys website, we do have the, have an article that lists 22 gay retirement communities. And I kind of, when we talk about gay retirement communities, I think we lump a number of these different types together. And I know that there are some co-housing yeah. complexes on that list. Good. Yeah. So a lot of times when we have the, the retirement conversation, people will oftentimes say, specifically, specifically for our LGBTQ audience, is that anywhere that's typically supportive and accepting of LGBTQ plus people is also very expensive. And unless you have the the financial means to to gravitate to those places, such as California, then it, it's kind of hard to find that kind this kind of sort of ideal retirement living situation. So we oftentimes are asked about what what the conditions are about living abroad. So with that, can you share you did a whole chapter on on living abroad. Can you share the pros and cons of, of living abroad for a general population? Yeah, you know, again, everything keeps changing. <laughs> Let me start by saying, if you can't afford, as far as you can tell, you can't afford to retire in, in the United States. I always start by saying to people, you know, there's life outside of California, or there's life outside in New York, or whatever expensive locale you have. What do New Yorkers tell you about that? Because every time I talk to a New Yorker, they're always like, when are you going to come visit us? I'm like, there's a whole other world out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you right. could visit us. Yeah. There's life beyond your vertical world. <laughs> yeah. You know, I did a one of my rare Zoom presentations for a group of New Yorkers the other day, a, over a hundred of them. And all solo agers, or at least interested in what I had to say about solo aging. And it's just so hard to get people in New York to think about any other way of living. And I I talked about, I mean, I gave some example of my, what I did during the pandemic and how we got together with our neighbors and that kind of thing. And this woman says to me, but during the Q&A period, she says, you know, well, you got together with people in your cul-de-sac. Well, we don't have a cul-de-sac. And I said, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't your nearest neighbor right across the hall? So, <laughs> no, I don't think you even have to bridge a cul-de-sac. Right. So, <laughs> I've lost on Anyway, I won't get... Sorry, David. Right. Sorry, John. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I, I distracted you. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So we're talking about living abroad, not living in New York, which does seem like a foreign country sometimes. <laughs> I usually tell people, do look outside the confines of the United States. And some people will, some people won't. There are huge expatriate communities in Mexico, in Central America, those are the two places that come to mind the quickest to me. They, depending on what you read and, and what you believe, they have good medical systems. I still like to believe that they do. A lot of their doctors were trained in the U.S. And very honestly, the medical system here is not so hot anymore. So 
you know, it's it's a whole different system that you have to get used to if you're not good with change. If you don't score very high on the adaptability and flexibility index, <laughs> you're probably not a good candidate for retiring abroad. Because boy, there are some things that you that are going to be really different. But it is cheaper. You can live on Social Security. I don't care what you're getting in the way of Social Security. If you're getting anything at all, you can find a way to live on it. Thailand is another place that's very popular now with expats from Canada and the U.S. Other places in Asia as well, Vietnam, sometimes the Philippines. And again, the, the, in the case of Thailand, their medical system is just first rate. And being part of that doesn't take a lot. So, yeah, now there are places in Europe, I understand very recently, because a friend of mine got caught up in it. You said, if you had an accident or got sick in Europe while you were traveling, they just take care of you, <laughs> you know, and you didn't owe them any money. They just take care of you, put you in a hospital or whatever it takes. And, you know, maybe you pay 10 or 20 bucks on your way out. Evidently, that's not the case anymore because mm -hmm. their medical systems were so stressed during COVID that they just can't afford to just treat every, you know, every visitor that decides they want to travel through Spain on a motorcycle. So, mm -hmm. But Portugal is still a popular place to retire, Spain, France. I just, if it were me, I think I'd head south. It's a little closer to the mainland U.S. You know, most people do have some family or friends that they want to stay in communication with. However, I don't want to leave that topic without saying that the best information I've ever found on living abroad is called is a publication and an organization called International Living. You know, put it into a search engine or internationalliving.com, I think is their URL. Excellent. Okay. It, it's just, it's so chock full of good information. It's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to take a look at that ourselves because we're at that age where we're starting to figure out where do we want to be in 10 years? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're at a good age to do it because when you move midlife, it's a lot easier than when you try and move when you're 65 or 70. So Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Another topic I wanted to discuss before we wrap things up, because this has been on our mind ever, pretty much ever since we started the podcast, it was brought to our attention, and you mentioned it in your book, is the need for long-term care insurance. And I think you kind of were alluding to that very early on in on the episode. Would you mind covering the need and well, what long-term care insurance is and the need that it addresses? And also that Medicaid, how Medicaid does not cover long-term care insurance. Yeah. I'm not an expert on Medicaid, but on Medicare, most people are under the very mistaken notion that if they fall and break a hip, that Medicare is going to take care of them. Well, Medicare is going to cover repairing that hip, but it's not going to cover the care you need to recover from that injury. In other words, all of what's known as the activities of daily living, everything from bathing, dressing, transferring from the bed to a wheelchair or the bed to a toilet, all the functions that go on with toileting, it doesn't cover that. Nothing covers that mm -hmm. except for long-term care insurance or private pay. So long-term care insurance is a tricky subject and because it, it's an ever-changing thing. I've had it for, for almost 20 years now. <laughs> God knows how much money I've paid into it, but I have. And it's going to pay for all of those kinds of things for me. 
when I need them. I could get hit by a bus or have a heart attack and I will never need it. And I've paid thousands of dollars into it for, you know, for nothing, but that's insurance. I mean, that's what insurance is, right? Right. Your house may never burn down either, but you pay that every year. Right. So long-term care insurance used to be a a good standalone product. Now I think it is mostly bundled with a, a life insurance plan. I think that's what you'll find if you try and seek it out. The best thing to do if you're if you are interested in it, and obviously, I mean, I'm a fan because I have it. And yes, some of the companies that enrolled people have gone under. So, but the the big ones have not, and they're still hanging in there. The problem that they had was that people started living longer. And they were spending a lot more than their actuaries told them they were going to have to spend. So the actuarial data on long-term care insurance was just bogus. It mm. just, it may not by anybody's fault. It's just that we judged how long people are going to live and how much care they'd need by a previous generation. Mm-hmm. And this generation is just living a long time. They're, now medical science has come a long way. So we're keeping people alive with conditions that used to kill us. So all this contributed to long-term care insurance companies being on very, very thin ice. And if you look at their Moody's rating or Standard & Poor's, whatever those ratings are, they're not high. You know, they've got like a C-plus rating because that their balance sheet and they're always trying to get people like me who have these really excellent policies to downgrade our policies, which will put them in a position of less liability. Right. So they're they're working it out, but slowly. See an independent broker who deals with long-term care insurance, not somebody who represents a particular company, but someone who can write a policy for you in a number of different companies and find out what they have to offer and what you can afford. It's not for everyone. Not everybody can afford it. And when you get it up into the higher income ranges, not everybody needs it. Some people can s- simply self-insure, but we're talking a lot of money. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's all I really can say about it at this point. Perfect. Well, I think we've covered quite the gamut on this episode. So thank you very much for all that wealth of information. And we highly recommend to our audience that they get a copy of your book. We'll talk about at the end of the outro here, how our audience can get entered to win a free copy of your book. But for those of us who don't win the contest, where can they find a copy that they can buy? <laughs> well, it's the easiest thing, obviously, you can get it on Amazon. But if you're not, if you don't want to support Amazon, your local bookstore can order it very easily. You can get it from other online booksellers. It's available as an ebook. It's available on Audible. So there are a lot of ways that you can acquire it. Awesome. And then where and how can our audience connect with you otherwise on your website, social media or whatever? Yeah, my website is probably my website or LinkedIn. Again, my name, sarahzefgeber.com will lead to my website. My company name, Life Encore, will also lead to my website. Same place, two different, <laughs> two different ways of getting there. But I have a pretty big presence on LinkedIn too. So you can find me there. Nice. Very, very much. Appreciate all that. We will definitely connect with you and provide all those links to everything in our show notes for those who weren't able to to write as fast as they would like. (laughs) Thank you very much for coming on the show today. We appreciate it. It was great information. You're quite welcome. And it was a lot of fun. Thank you. 
Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Dr. Geber, for an amazing and comprehensive interview. Thank you, our listeners and viewers, for joining us for another episode. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this one. Get a copy of Dr. Geber's book, Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers. For a chance to win a free copy, subscribe to the Queer Money Podcast email list at queermoneypodcast.com forward slash subscribe. Then join us this Thursday when we talk about the most affordable LGBTQ plus friendly city in the state of Michigan. And next Tuesday, when we talk about sustainable value-based investing. Thanks and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.